Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alark Purcell. I'm the founding host of the podcast. I've been crewing up on sets since uh, college. I've served on feature films, shorts and commercials, corporate videos. As a filmmaker, I've made about a dozen shorts and features, either as a producer or a director. And I'm just finishing up post on my first feature film as a writer, director, the alternate. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer, and I also happen to cast the work that I make. I have two feature films under my belt and a third one that I'm currently writing. I am a former film critic and a current distribution consultant who used to manage the Creative Distribution Initiative at Sundance. Uh, This week we have the amazing Ross Putman. He's a former producer of like the most amazing movies in the world, including First Girl I Loved, which is a personal favorite of mine, uh, and a current agent at Verve who focuses on sales and financing. We're going to jump right into the interview, but stick around for our Get Shorty segment, which focuses on a short, a short film by Amy Morgan. And then we'll do a You've Got Mail segment where we read recent comments and emails about the show. Without further jibber jabber, here's Ross Putman. Yay. Okay. Yay, Ross. Thank you for being here today. And... This is unusual because usually we talk to someone and we ask them lots of questions about one project, but we're going to ask you just about yourself. So get yourself comfortable. Um, Can you give us a quick bio, please? Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, I, uh, I'm a talker, so I will try to consciously stop myself from running on all the time, but you know that, Liz. Uh, I, uh, my name is Ross. I used to be a producer, uh, indie producer. I made a dozen movies over, uh, over the past decade or so, um, and uh, transitioned a couple of years ago into becoming a uh, film finance and sales agent at Verve uh, in Los Angeles. So uh, that now I help people put their movies together. I just don't go on set and make them. Um, and as a result, I've lost 20 pounds and I'm far happier and my life is filled with sunshine and roses. <laughs> so why did you decide to go from being a producer to an agent? So... I never, th- I never worked in an agency. A lot of people start in agencies uh, in this business. They'll be an assistant or they'll be an intern there or in the mailroom, um, which is kind of the, the traditional idea people have of how to break in. Um, and I never did. I, I went from film school to becoming an assistant and then I became an executive at a company and then I eventually became a producer on my own. Um, so the agency world was very foreign to me. And to be honest, most of the agents that I had to interact with weren't all that interested in the movies I was making, not because they're bad people or or don't like good things because I make good movies. Uh, it's because I was making tiny little movies with no money involved with them, right? And the you know at the end of the day, um, you're trying to get people jobs, trying to get them paid as an agent. There's not a lot of money in tiny little independent films. So for me, my experiences with agents were pretty limited um, in terms of what I thought uh, you know they did for movies. Then I got to meet the team at Verve. Um, we collaborated on a film that I produced called Plus One, which is a romantic comedy on Hulu. I'm plugging it right now, starring Maya Erskine and Jack Quaid. It's lovely. And uh, I was trying to put that movie together with the team and Verve wound up bringing most of the financing to the project. Uh, they said, we have a relationship with this um, and they delivered. So we wound up working together uh, on that. They sold the film. And in the aftermath, they said, are you, uh, 
have you ever thought about becoming an agent? And I thought that was insane because I've never, <laughs> never worked at an agency, never found agents to be particularly helpful on my tiny little indies. But then um, I got to know the team at Verve and I was just wildly impressed about why they got up in the morning, which was just to make things, to do great work. So that won me over. It was like help filmmakers get their movies made, help voices be heard to me is why I was a producer. And that's the same thing I was being pitch to do, but in this kind of institutional capacity where I would work with a lot more filmmakers because we represent so many great people. Um, so I took the leap and it was a great decision because I get to work with, like I said, so many incredible voices that are represented at Verve, uh, people that want to tell unique and different stories. Every day we're talking about different projects, different ideas, different stories, different budget sizes, tones. And to me, that's really compelling. So um, I think I got to use uh, the best of my uh, abilities from being a producer. Now I do it as an agent. I wanted you to know the subtitle for the show, just internally. We won't use this to market, but it's being an agent and not being evil. Um, and so could you extrapolate a little bit on Verve? Because I know that, um, I mean, from my vantage point, Verve is like a very stellar reputation. Um, and I'd love to to hear you talk about uh, maybe why. I think you probably have the same opinion I do. So why does Verve kind of stand out amongst a sea of kind of um, – evil agencies if i can say that one being evil i i, I know i, will just I know you about, wouldn't take uh, the bait <laughs> i'm just going to speak about uh, a verb and what we do um you know verb was founded as a literary agency first and foremost so that meant we represent writers and directors not uh, at, at first, we weren't representing actors or, or um, unscripted television or even television to start. It was really just features and, and storytellers. Um, but the agency's grown ever since. And, and uh, now we represent uh, people across all different uh, categories, meaning writers, directors, actors, podcasters, book writers, uh, you know, reality television, all those types of things we represent. Um, but the core ethos of the agency was client first, you know, of just we succeed when the clients succeed. Um, and that was a really strong sales pitch that they, you know, the agency still uses and, and, and is accurate. And it, it was part of the reason I wanted to go there is because I realized that, um, you know, when we get up in the morning, it's to help build the careers and projects of our clients for a radical reason. Follow me here because we work with them because we like them and believe in them. So, uh, so that's a really refreshing and straightforward ethos to me, which is we work with people we love. Um, we work with people we believe in. And if we're going to do that, then we should do the work and we should build with them into the future. And I think the thing that sets Verve uh, apart is we've been on the forefront of a lot of the, uh, the the things concerning our community, like the Writers Guild franchise agreement, where we were the first major agency to reach an agreement with the guild. Um, and that's because that's what our clients wanted. And it's also what we wanted, because we want to do our jobs to the best of our ability, not sit around waiting. So, um, you know, as an agency where we've grown, we're, you know, um, we're, we're representing people at all stages of their careers, um, very established filmmakers and storytellers, as well as emerging voices. And to me, um, you know, the, the people is what makes the difference. And the people where I work are fantastic. They, they get up with a shared mission every morning to build and make and understand that success comes from doing those things. So that's an ethos I can get on board with. And that's what we do. I think um, as far as where Verve fits in the ecosystem of agencies, um, 
every agency has a different culture and every agency is a different fit for a different person. We think we're a good fit for a certain type of storyteller. And that usually means they find their way to us or we find them. Um, so it's just kind of a belief in, in staying true to your, your, your ethos, what you do and, and that successful follow. So that, I don't hope that doesn't seem evasive, but, uh, I, it is genuinely how we, how we operate and it feels great to get up every day and do that. So, uh, to double down on Liz's reference to the classic uh, stereotypical agent, you know, like imagining, you know, cocktails at lunch, you know, like getting up, going to work at 11, whatever, all this stuff that you'd imagine like a fancy agent. You're just talking about living through a pandemic. That's all that is. It's just. (laughs) But anyways, like, I just wanted to hear about what your day to day was. Like, what, what, what do you actually do every day when you go into your office or working from home or whatever? So, I mean, some of the days spent in meetings because communication between agents and departments is always very important um, to kind of see what's going on over here. How can we be helpful? So there's, you know, a good amount of internal communication that goes on every day. Um, But in terms of what I, excuse me, in terms of what I do, you know, I get up uh, usually after having read some scripts the previous night and um, each project has a different need, but the end goal is to either get into production or if the film is already shot, um, sell it you know, to a distributor in the United States and Canada. So that can mean everything from doing a conference call with the filmmakers to talk about cast lists on the project. It could mean sending out a project to film finance companies that might be interested in putting in the financing to make a film. Um, It could mean that we get a call where someone says, uh, a financier fell out of my project last minute and we're shooting in five days and I need to replace them. And suddenly we have a very specific number and we need to go out and make phone calls and find that person that can come in and save the day. Um, it could mean that we just have a great new script from a client who says, I think this could be a great independent film. I've never directed before. I want to direct. Great. I've, as a producer, made six first time uh, film uh, directors uh, films and we represent a lot of writers that want to direct. So then it's like, okay, now we're going to put a plan together for how to get you into the director's chair. It, it could be different for every project, but the baseline is that we are here to be um, problem solvers and a value add for you as you try to figure out how to overcome all of the challenges that stand between you and making a film, which are, as Liz knows particularly, because <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I've, I've seen you go through them, it, it, it can be that long, arduous process of saying, okay, we, we whacked one mole, now the other mole's up. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to do it alone. So that's where we can kind of come in and say, using our relationships, using our our resources, how can we fill in some of the gaps in your plan? Or if you don't have a plan, build one together. We've had a lot of um, conversations about agents in the past few weeks, which is why it's so great to have you here, Ross, and and kind of um, speak for the good ones. Um, Can you tell us a little bit, um, or can you respond to the idea that a filmmaker should not chase after representation, but wait to be approached? And, And do you agree with that? Or do you uh, welcome cold inquiries to your office. Very few agencies are going to respond to cold inquiries um, as a matter of course. It's a legal issue and it can be um, it can be very problematic if someone decides to take legal action claiming that you stole their idea or something like that. So we, you know most agencies who have included don't look at cold submissions. Um, that being said, um, something that I've come to understand both as a producer and a filmmaker and now as an agent, is that when the time is right for you to have an agent, you're going to have an agent. And I know that seems very um, 
help makes you feel a little helpless to hear, I think, if you're someone who wants to be represented. But the reality is that um, the team that you build around you for representation should be organic and positive, not forced, which is that when you work with a manager, for example, that manager should genuinely care about your work, your career, and want to build it with you. Because if you're going to be talking to them every day, every other day, they're going to be reading every draft of your script, going to be looking at every cut of your film, um, helping set you up on meetings, introducing you to people. You want that person to believe right? You want them to actually get up in the morning and say, I believe in this person's talent and I can help them. And the same goes for an agent. Um, You know, I don't know if you ever talked about the differences between managers and agents. We don't need to get into that now, but I think pursuing an agent because you think they're going to um, level your career up or, or solve a problem for you or simply get your script read is only going to be effective for you if the person you're working with truly believes in your talent, um, because then they're going to do the work. You don't want to have a relationship where someone is doing you a favor simply because they are tired of hearing from you, right? So, <laughs> I th- no, I mean, it's, it's if you think about it, right? It's like, that's it's not going to help you in the long run. So I think generally as agents, we spend a great deal of time watching what's out there, reading what's out there, looking at potential clients, um, you know, seeing film festivals, not even just all the giant ones, but sometimes the smaller ones, getting referrals. That's a lot of what we do is look at who's out there. And when you create work, which is the thing you actually have within your control to a certain extent, even if it's micro budget work, you're just giving more reasons to be noticed. And when you finally make that short or write that script or put together that project that gets noticed, then you have that organic excitement about what you're doing. And the person says, wow, I saw this short you made. It seems like you made it for 50 bucks. It was so good. Here's why I loved it. I want to work with you. That's a much better call than emailing four times and finally get somebody saying, "Ugh, you know what? I'll send your script to three places, right? Because all of a sudden, you know, the second that you get a pass, that that line of questioning is pretty much over. So it's my long-winded way of saying like, it can feel frustrating, but you are in control of the work you make for yourself. And that is the only thing, if you're looking for representation, the only thing you need to keep doing is making things and making good things. So I want want to ask you about like, when you do like land in that relationship and you do, you know, agree to sign on to an agent and you're working with somebody, I feel like a lot of the issues that we've heard um, from previous guests in the last few weeks have been kind of around communication and maybe not being on the same page with their team, you know? So um, I would love to hear about how do you think it's best for like, you know, a writer or a director or somebody to work with an agent? Like what's the best like way to communicate, the best way to approach it? Like, you know, how, how, how is the ideal situation supposed to go? So just to clarify, I'm a finance and sales agent. So that means that I work on individual projects. I don't represent individual clients as their key agent. That's going to, you know, be making a ton of phone calls and doing all that. My job is to say, okay, here's a project. Let's work together to build this project. So I just want to clarify for the listeners that, might not know what I do exists, (laughs) to be honest, but um, which it does uh, at every agency. But, uh, you know, I think that the the key thing that I've learned over time, and and, and this should apply to most relationships, not just a relationship with a representative, is um, uh, an honest conversation about expectations, 
right? So when you're working with someone, maybe it's a new relationship, it might feel awkward to say, uh, I want to talk about what I should expect. I want to talk about realistically how I should be thinking about something because it might you might think that it feels like you're guessing the competent, you know, questioning the competency of that person. But but on on the flip side, I actually think that that question is really freeing. So when you start a new relationship, whether it's a representative or a collaborator on a film or a film financier or a, even a you know PA on your film or whatever it is. I think a conversation about expectations is always really helpful and saying like, great, I understand I wrote one script, everybody likes it, we want to do something with it, but what should I expect and what is expected of me, right? Because it's a two-way street, you know, a a lot of representatives, um, you know, uh, sometimes people will say, well, nothing happened with my script and now I don't have a job and I'm wondering what my representatives are doing. And it's like, well, when was that script written? 18 months ago? 12 months ago, what are you working on now? What are you doing next? And that's not to say that what you've already done is devalued. It's just that if if things haven't sparked with that, the best thing you can do for yourself is give another reason for people to be talking about you, right? So here's the next thing, here's the next thing. So if you're a writer, you should be writing, right? I know that's a radical idea. But I think you know that two-way street can get difficult if there's not new material to work with, if the expectations are not aligned, if you wanted to sell your script for a million dollars, but it was never going to sell for a million dollars, you're going to be disappointed when it doesn't. But if it was never going to, you should have been on the same page about that. So I think it's just having that conversation about what you want to achieve, what you, where you'd like to go. And any representative or collaborator or friend you're talking with should understand that if you want to be directing a Marvel movie, that's going to be a long road to that place. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It just means that you're not going to get there tomorrow and you're not going to get there next year. And you might not get there in five years. But if you want to get there, there are steps you can take along the way. So that all comes down again to expectations and just having that honest conversation about what should I expect and what's expected of me. I think that works really well to clarify these relationships. And then you can hold each other accountable if those expectations are clear. Right. Uh, but if they're not, then you're just kind of wondering or they're wondering what the other person's thinking. I think that applies to many, many relationships. And it's a struggle for a lot of us to, to be upfront about expectations. <laughs> but yeah, I'm formulating a question in my mind. So forgive me if I if it comes out poorly. Um, I'm thinking a lot about curation and meritocracy and like all the different pipelines to discovery. So when you're being approached with a project for financing, or sales, um, and you don't have uh, a relationship, a previous relationship with this client, do you ever feel like there was a better, um, more democratic way to get to products? Or do you think that the system really does allow the cream to rise to the top? And sorry if that's a crazy question, Ross, also. This is my personal opinion here. which is that I do think to a certain extent, the cream rises. And that's not to say that the initial access to tastemakers can be difficult, right? So you could be the world's greatest uh, screenwriter living in Akron, Ohio. And if literally nobody you know has any connection whatsoever to the film industry, you don't have any relationships and you're you're wondering what to do with your gorgeous screenplay that you wrote, um, that can feel helpless and limiting. 
Um, that said, you know, representatives pay attention to contests, pay attention to um, fellowships, pay attention to the Nichols, but also to the Page Screenwriting Awards and Austin Film Festival and other film festivals. And, you know, at a certain point, if your work is good, someone is going to notice it even within those circles, right? Like if you're, if you're at the best script of all time and send it to 20 screenplay competitions and you win you don't get far at any of them. Maybe you didn't actually write the best script of all time. And that's not my way of saying that sometimes people don't slip through the cracks, but there are those initial kind of sparks for people that are completely outside the industry to hopefully get some notice. Um, also, look, I can't speak for all managers because I am not one, nor do I work at a management company, but many managers do um, look at cold submissions um, or, or will at least read your letter or look at your log line. So that's something that, you know, can, can be a way in. And there are stories of writers, including ones who I know and who Verve represents, who got their managers by writing a cold letter to a manager many years ago, you know? So there is still that. And, and if the manager says, I'll read it and you wrote a great script, they're going to notice. That's their job, right? Is to notice. So in terms of a meritocracy, the good news is that the democratization of film production in terms of cost, i.e. that pretty much all of us have a functional like camera in our pocket at this point. Um, and, uh, and then the democratization of distribution in the sense that you can easily put your movie up on YouTube if you'd like to, or, or anywhere and get it watched um, and share it. Uh, and the, and also the Except for Amazon, if you're a short film or a documentary. Uh, no comment. <laughs> um, and then, um, you know, but because you have all that access to 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 just put it out there, right, and to show it to people, um, there is a there is an easier path now than ever before. That if you made a great short film and you don't get into a festival you want to get to, then put it up online. Get a blog to you know write a blog, see if people will watch it. It's mostly a time commitment on your side to just pound the pavement and try to raise awareness. And if your short film is fantastic and people are starting to talk about it, you will get noticed. Um, it, there's no. There's, I will say this, there's plenty of times that we as an agency will, will see a piece of work or hear about something that we love. And we're like, wow, where did this person come from? And uh, uh, wow, they are so talented. And we'll reach out to them to say, we'd like to meet. And they're having meetings with four agencies, <laughs> right? So, so you're like, aha, okay. So, um, so again, it just comes down to like, keep making things. Yeah, of course it sucks if you're the creator that makes great things. Nobody notices, you know, like it's like you have to be 80 and you're like an artist, one of those artists that didn't get popular until after they died or something. But like mm -hmm. the world moves a lot faster now. And, and, and if you have access to the internet, which most people do, and if you have access to a camera phone, um, then keep making things, honing your craft. And once you've made something great um, or something that catches fire, you're going to get attention. Um, even if you just put it up on YouTube as, as, as much as I'm not saying it's a magic. And if you just do that, it's going to work for you. Um, but if it doesn't work on this short film or this script, write the next one, make the next one. Worst case scenario, you have more arrows in your quiver. Can you talk about like your uh, process um, on a project and how you find those projects? Like, are you assigned projects by your team? Are you like reading a bunch of scripts to try to find the project that you want to work on? And then once you find that project, um, how do you get it made? Like, do you have like financiers that you already know that you just reach out to? Like, do you have to find these people? Like, how sure. does it all work? So there's this uh, magic lamp that if you rub it, uh, a genie comes out. 
you get three wishes, but you can't wish for more wishes, unfortunately. Um, so uh, that's a very broad question. I will try to answer it as quickly as possible. In terms of where material comes from, it comes from many different places. Um, I work in an agency that represents writers and directors. So that means that we work with great talent. And oftentimes it's not about being assigned something. It's about a client will have written a script. They say, I think this could be an independent film. And if they're represented at the agency, one of my colleagues or myself, if I hear about it in a staff meeting, will will take a look and say, okay, could I help with this, right? Because they, they want to live in the independent world with this and that's what I do. So I would take a look, uh, evaluate what we think is possible, and then have a conversation with the client about how to build. And if we all like the path, then we go and we do it. Right. And we say, let's go put this together. The other way is, um, you know, through incoming material, through referrals, you know, that can be a producer who says, hey, this client isn't represented at Verve, but um, I would love to work with you on building this project. That's a common thing that happens because we work with producers. So when that happens, then we say, great, do I think I can actually help? Do I like it? Do I think I can help? That's basically what it is. I don't want to get involved with a project I can't actually help on, right? Because that doesn't help anybody. Uh, saying help a lot. Um, producers, referrals, relationships. A lot of this business is referrals and relationships because to a certain extent, if follow me here, if a manager I know who has great taste and I know a lot of their clients and they seem to like the same types of things I like, or I know that when they send something, it's always of a high caliber. If they refer something to me, I'm going to expect it to be of a high caliber, right? So there's the value of trusted referrals. And then also just um, you know tracking what's out there, going to see films at film festivals, watching shorts. And when there's a talented person who um, we all respond to, even if they are not going to immediately become a client of the agency, if I and my team think we can build a project with them and that there's value for everybody in doing that, then we might reach out and say, hey, we saw your short film at Tribeca. What are you working on next? Let's talk about it, you know? So it, it goes both ways. Sometimes it comes from us, sometimes it comes from referrals, but there's never any lack of scripts in my inbox to read. There's never any lack of material uh, coming in or landing on our radar. Um, you know, I, there's not a weekend that goes by when I think I didn't read enough. And I think that's a testament to all the great work everyone's doing out there, yay. But also, um, Look, once you, if I'm hearing about it, it means that it made it through a couple layers of people that said, this is awesome, right? And if it's at that point, you might be ready to take this leap in your career and work on something bigger and build. Um, I'm not trying to say the system's perfect, but I am saying that, you know, you know, I, I got referred to short filmmaker the other day from a trusted producer friend. I thought the short was really strong. It hadn't played any major film festivals. And my producer friend was saying, I don't know why it hasn't, uh, because I think it's great. So when he said that, I said, okay, well, let me watch it. I really liked it. I had an introductory phone call with the filmmaker um, who's ta very talented. And I basically said, like, when you have a script ready um, that you're interested in um, making as a feature, consider my door open to read. And if that script is something I think I can help with and as good as their past work, then there might be a potential for us to collaborate. But right now, all it was was I watched a short and had a nice phone call with a filmmaker. Wow, oh, that's amazing! Uh, I didn't answer the second part, by oh, the way. Oh, please but, do, uh, please go do it. Uh, I just realized that. Um, how do I do? How do I put things together? So, coming from producing, 
my job and the job of any good film finance and sales agent is to have an understanding of the marketplace, to have relationships at the major companies that are set up to create independent films. So there are, you know, production companies that have production finance and production capability. And their job is to, uh, they're literally created to make independent film, right? So there's that whole landscape of companies that have films at major film festivals and you have seen them and you watch them at home and you watch them on Netflix. It's, it's my job and our job to have relationships and build relationships if we don't with those places, right? Because that's a, they need material and we have it, right? And we need help making the movies and they have that. Um, there's also just the networking relationships of, you know, private individuals that might want to finance a film, or there's relationships with um, filmmakers who might have access to in kind, or there's, uh, you know, tax incentives that we might know about that we could direct our clients toward, or there's banks that can lend against certain guarantees that you might get from a distributor. Like there's so many different ways to make a single film. And my job and any good independent film agent's job is to have as much knowledge about that as possible and as many relationships as you can keep building um, that might help. Uh, so it's very like 40 chess sometimes. I don't mean that to like make myself feel good about what I do. It's just sometimes you're like trying to connect dots from one side of a board to another and you sometimes will find that connection and you get two people together and all of a sudden you have a movie. Um, I would say that uh, the the best way to summarize it is that every time there's a Sundance, I get asked how many movies did I see at Sundance, and my answer is usually zero or one. And people say, "Well, what you didn't? You work in independent film. You went to Sun. You went to Sundance. You were there because I go for my work." And they're like, "Well, you were there. You didn't see any movies." And it's like, my job at Sundance is not to see movies. My job at Sundance is to have meetings and talk to people that are going to help me make movies. So that way we can't, because everyone is there doing that at the same time. Um, I'll see the Sundance movies. I usually see them after. Uh, but while I'm at the festival, it's eight meetings a day with people that are like-minded, hopefully, that might say, we all want to collaborate on making things. And it could be someone who has access to capital. It could just be someone who um, is a connector and says, I know this filmmaker and I know this person. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. So when they say it's who you know, um, it's impossible to be born knowing all these people, but it's my job to, uh, to try to foster relationships with as many people in the space that I work in, because you never know how it might all connect together um, on a given project down the line. Um, this is another esoteric question from Liz. Uh, you talked in the beginning of our chat about sunshine and rainbows and getting up in the morning and loving what you do. Can you talk about a specific moment of joy? Like what is the most fulfilling part of, of your day that actually propels you forward and convinces you that this is the right path? This is a business of ambitious people. And I don't think ambition necessarily has to be a dirty word. Um, it drives us to be better, hopefully. It drives us to work hard and, and make great things and to pick ourselves up when we have uh, failures and keep going. And um, obviously out of control ambition can be dangerous, but I think if you're in this business, it's because you have an ambition to achieve something. Um, maybe you're a first time filmmaker and your goal is to make your film. Maybe you're a fifth time filmmaker and your goal is to win an Academy Award. Whatever the goal is, um, it's, it's part of a path in the career of a filmmaker. Uh, what is joyous to me about what we do is that um, we're, I don't wanna say we're 
this sounds so trite and it's not true. Making dreams come true. That's horrible. That's horrible. That sounds like I can wave a wand and just uh, make anything happen for anybody. And, and that would be disingenuous of me to suggest that what I can do is I can get up and work as hard as I can on something I care about to be a partner with you to, to hopefully bring it into the world. A joy that I've experienced is when you achieve that milestone, right? When, when somebody says, here's what I want to achieve. Um, I have a filmmaker who, uh, uh, we started working with last year who I've always been a fan of, um, but they've never directed a film. I'm a big fan of their writing. And uh, they signed with, with Verve after leaving where they were previously represented. And I was a part of the team that uh, brought them in. And their goal was, they said, I have this project. It's, it's basically dead, but I want to direct it. And I have a cast attachment, but we just don't have enough money. And, it's, and everyone's seen it and passed and uh, seemed very despondent, but said, I really do want to make this movie. So I took a look at the film. I looked at the budget. I looked at the uh, elements and looked at all the uh, attachments. And, and I had an opinion, which was, I thought, I, I know why this movie hasn't happened. It's, it's truthfully because you're trying to make it for too much money. It's not a cop-out. It, it's not saying that um, you can't raise that money. I'm saying that the market doesn't really bear it. And that's why you're getting the response you're getting. That's my opinion. And I said, I also think that we could reconfigure this film in a way that will allow you to make it as opposed to sit on it. And the filmmaker said, great, let's figure that out. So we got in together, worked on the budget, brought it down, um, reconfigured some of the attachments, held on to our one cast attachment, and basically got the movie to a place where with the money that was already attached, it was now over half financed. And we went out and found another partner at this lower budget level. And within, you know, six to eight months after this filmmaker signed with us, we had a like, quote unquote, blinking green light on the movie. We're waiting on COVID before we can go into production, but the movie is now real. It's, it's financed. It has commitments that cover the full budget. It has uh, all the key attachments still involved, including the actor that the director wanted to work with. And we've now wound up in a place where I got to make a phone call to that filmmaker saying like, we have your movie. It's going to be real. And uh, that doesn't mean there can't still be roadblocks. There's roadblocks every step of the way, but um there's joy in that, not just because I achieved something I set out to achieve, which was work with this person and, and help them get this made. Of course, that's very like self-centered. I think there's some joy from just the general idea that like a good, it's a, it's a genuinely good story that deserves to be told. It's going to make a great movie. And um, without my collaboration and work with the team, it might not have happened. And um, that's joyful because every movie is such a group effort. Every movie takes so much effort from so many people. And uh, to, to see it actually click, um, you have to step back once in a while and say, wow, that doesn't happen every day. As much as movies get made all the time, um, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just fail. They never happen. And, and when they do, uh, you should take a moment and appreciate that. So so those little joys of, of you know, especially with emerging filmmakers who are saying, I just need that bump to, to get to the next level. And, and, and I know I have the goods and I'm willing to work. And when we can get them that bump to the next level and then they, and then they start to soar, um, that's really cool uh, because they were always going to get there if they kept working. But it feels really good to have been a part of getting that person to the place where they could soar and, uh, and, and continuing on the journey with them. So if I sound... Uh, uh, I know that's uh, I couldn't get specific about the project, but you know it's a great feeling to to have a film go into production and know that it probably wouldn't have happened if you hadn't been there to help. It's a George Bailey thing, you know. Wow, that's amazing. Um, 
I, I have so many questions. I'm trying to like filter through my brain to figure out which one to ask first. But I think what I want to talk about is genre and like if there's any specific genres that you find easier to bring to life than others and more specifically like as emerging filmmakers like what genres are helpful to focus on like does it really matter or are there certain ones that like are just easier to get made so my general so in terms of genre for me i uh it's interesting because there's so much business in the horror space, but it's not a place I grew up with, which is like, I, I don't, I don't know the touchstones. I didn't, I didn't live in that world as a teenager uh, where a lot of people did. So, so that's the only genre that sometimes I, I appreciate from an artistic standpoint on the page, but sometimes I don't know all the ins and outs of what makes a genre lover's brain tick. Although I am learning more about that because it's exciting. That community is really vibrant and and loves cinema, and it's so cool uh, how much they support filmmakers. But I think um, every I think there's a conventional wisdom that if you make a horror, thriller, action movie, like those are easier to to get made. Um, but I think that my hot take is that every independent film is not equally as hard because each film has different um, intangibles, but none none of them are easy. I guess what I'm saying is none of them are easy. And to act like because you wrote a horror script, it's going to be easy to get made as opposed to writing a drama is not necessarily the case, right? It comes down to so many other things of like, what are the roles for actors? What is the budget? How many shooting days are you going to need? Um, you know, what's the tone? Is it based on a true story? Is Who are the producers? Uh, you know, that type of, there's so much beyond just genre that applies to like what makes a project, you know, difficult or easy, right? So I have a family movie I'm putting together. It's a $20 million budget. I also have a horror movie together. I'm a horror movie I'm putting together. That's 750,000. Um, I don't think either is going to be easier than the other because <laughs> as much as the horror movie is a much lower budget, it's a more unproven filmmaker. So I have to get someone who says, I'm going to take a chance on a filmmaker who's never made a feature before. And also probably on a cast that's not super well known because it's a micro budget movie on the $20 million movie. It's a big family movie. There's a dog talking dog in it. It's amazing. <laughs> by the way, it's awesome. There's a famous person attached to do the voice of the dog. It's the cutest movie. I love it. I, when I read it, I wanted to work on it here at Verve. It's our filmmakers, our, our director and our producer uh, writer is working on it. But on that movie, like, yeah, here's the challenge of that movie. We got to get $20 million. Right? Like that's, that's, that's not easy just because the movie is more quote unquote commercial for a wide audience. The budget is 30 times what that <laughs> horror movie is. So that means I need to get a lot more resources together with the producers and the filmmaker to get, to make it a reality, which means we need a certain caliber of cast and we need a certain um, name value and those types of things. So, so each project has its own difficulties that are, to a certain extent, look, until you're making the film, we're using, we're talking on the phone and tapping on computers. Okay. So, so how much harder is one email than another one? Right. It's like, I'm not saying that, um, that, you know, the volume of calls and emails might not be bigger on one or the other, but in, the reality is that every project has immense challenges it needs to overcome before it happens. All of that being said, if you're going to make, especially if you're a first time 
filmmaker or an emerging filmmaker, which I'd imagine a lot of your audience is going to be, is people that are saying, I want to, I want to figure out how to get my thing made. I want to figure out how to move forward. I want to get advice about what to do. It's like, don't worry so much about genre, worry about what you can control. You know, that's what I, that's what I'm saying. Like I've told this story probably to Liz a hundred times. She knows a filmmaker, um, Karam Sanga, who I work with and, and she helped us when we were at the Sundance Institute. But Karam and I went to film school together and the first film we made with our collaborator, Dave Hunter, who's my producing partner for many years, was we made a movie for $4,000, <laughs> like a feature film. It took us a year and a half to shoot it. And um, that led to us being able to raise money to make Karam's next movie, um, which because we had made a $4,000 movie that was functional, we could show it to people and raise money for the next one, right? So it, it didn't matter so much what the movie was. It just mattered that we made it and it was good enough to, to like level up. So I guess I'd say is like, don't force yourself into a genre. Write what you're excited to write. Write what's actually going to represent who you are and what's on the page. And understand, I think at the at the base level of almost all the work you're going to do, it will not get made. That's not my way of saying it's not good. Most scripts that are written are not sold and made. Most scripts that are written are samples that get you jobs. They're, they're samples that get you in a room for a meeting on, that's going to lead to something down the road. So if you're writing something that you think you're reverse engineering it to get made, that's not going to be as effective as if you just put your genuine voice on the page or on the screen. That's my biggest suggestion is be true to who you are and how you see the world and don't try to please other people to start. Eventually you might want to please other people, but don't do it in a vacuum. Please other people meaning take a job. Maybe it's a job where you don't love the source material, but you know you can execute, right? Maybe you take a job adapting something down the road. Take that job, get paid, right? But what I'm talking about is if you're trying to break in and establish yourself, don't already deviate from what you're good at or what you know. Do what you're good at and what you know to the best of your ability. And, and that's what's going to get you noticed. And it might mean that the thing you did never gets you gets made. But if the horror script you wrote gets you a meeting to write something else, and now you're getting paid to write that other thing because they love your voice, suddenly writing that script was worth it. Let's talk about sales. And um, I think you probably are anticipating a question similar to this from me. Um, due to lack of transparency in this industry, we don't really know um, if filmmaking is sustainable. But you are in a unique position where you could tell us, Ross, are people <laughs> recouping? Are people recouping from these deals that you're working with? Or can you even speak to that? So on one side, there is a certain lack of transparency inherent to a more digital model in the sense that as we all know, Netflix will sort of selectively give you data that is usually mostly focused on like their biggest titles. Um, um, some other streaming platforms have, don't really provide any data um, today, which, which by the way, they don't have to, right? Uh, they, they have no obligation to do so because there's no middleman in this case, right? When you have theaters that are not owned by studios, you have a middleman, right? Which is you have the theaters that are selling tickets and then they're giving the money back to the studios in a split with the studios. Um, so that's why we have Box Office Mojo, right? Those types of websites where you can at least see the gross and success of certain films. Um, the streaming era or the home VOD era is more difficult because there is no 
obligation or tradition of releasing those numbers, although once in a while you will get some from select distributors. So there is a certain inability to aggregate information as one might have used to do with box office mojo or theatrical or even home video, which usually was reported when back when VHS and DVD were huge. But um, in terms of our people recouping here, here's the bottom line. Too much content is being made. <laughs> so the expectation that everyone can recoup is unfortunately not possible. Um, and that's because you could go out and raise money from your friends and family or just spend your own paycheck or spend nothing at all with an iPhone and go make a movie and, and potentially even get into a great film festival. Uh, but the expectation that you're going to sell that movie for more money than you made it for is one that is not really rooted in any sort of reality about the business over the course of any period of time in it. Uh, so, you know, people used to talk about, you know, back in the, in the early nineties at Sundance, if your movie didn't sell to a big distributor, you'd be lucky to get distribution because there wasn't a digital market where your films could go for a lower cost than going to theaters. And you might get picked up for a DVD release, but that was considered back in the day straight to video, right? Which was this, you know, <laughs> this, uh, this dirty word. So there hasn't, there has always been an element of risk to investing in film that most companies and investors know. They know that it's risky. And I think that the, the only way that a movie recoups, and I've had movies recoup, movies recoup all the time, is to curate based on all of the intangibles you can possibly think about in terms of cast and quality and filmmaker and use your taste and use your judgment. Like, uh, I guess that's my way of saying like, Plenty of films make money and you can mitigate risk more and more at the front end. And that's definitely something that's happening more in our business is instead of the old, we got somebody to write a $10 million check, went to Sundance and, and we hoped for a bidding war, which happens to, happens to very few people ever at all anyways. Um, it's more so that we would say, okay, we put a film together, we've we pre-sold some international or we set it up with a domestic deal ahead of time that we can potentially get out of if we get a better one, that's called a backstop. Uh, maybe there's, um, you know, even just foreign estimates from a company that you, that you trust that sort of provides a floor on what you think is possible for the film. There's just a lot of different ways to not just do a film with a straight check and then hope you make it back. And, and I think a combination of a, there's a competitive marketplace for getting involved early on projects now, which is great because there's so many outlets and so many streamers and so many companies that are releasing content that if you really want something, you need to move fast and move early, which is good for filmmakers, I think. And then secondly, it's just, yeah, the democratization of content creation cuts both ways, which is that there, there inherently cannot be an expectation without reasonable metrics for your film to recoup. Those reasonable metrics can be looked at. They can be looked at, that's foreign sales estimates, what cast do you have, what comps do you have for the film, what has happened to films with the same cast recently, who are the filmmakers. You could take a look at all that data and also, by the way, the quality of the thing you're making, which I think matters amazingly, uh, should be number one potentially on that list um, because a bad movie can only go so far in my opinion. Um, but if you, if you can look at all that and say, look, the risk is relatively low on this because we can ascertain from our intelligent knowledge of this business that this is a good investment. It's my job to have a knowledge of that as well, to advise on that and to hopefully push projects that can be like that. On the other side, if you made a great little short film or a great little um, $10,000 feature and got it into Sundance and suddenly you're feeling like, 
oh my God, I'm going to sell it for a million dollars. You're probably not going to, but the getting into Sundance is probably worth the $10,000, worth the, worth the $10,000 for your career. So I guess what I'm saying is like the expectation to recoup can only be reasonably fortified by doing the work around that expectation of saying, how do we raise this up? How do we protect ourselves from failing? And in terms of sustainability for the business, I think the biggest thing standing between independent film and some level of sustainability beyond the fact that there simply is too much content with a with an expectation to recoup is there's volatility in the sense that every few years there's a different distribution model. And, and, and that's difficult, right? And that's not going to change anytime soon. I mean, the change is constant. The lack of change is not going to happen. So every few years, there's a new way that, you know, it's like first it was, you know, all theatrical. Then it was, now we have home video. Then it was, now it's DVD instead of VHS. Then it was, you know, uh, the, the beginnings of On Demand. And then it was TVOD. And now it's SVOD, which is streaming. And AVOD's creeping up. We still, the great, the great hope of AVOD. <laughs> and AVOD, which is advertising based, uh, uh, you know, um, licensing. So you can, your film is, you know, the, the, your film is being paid for by advertisements. So, which is like, there's new platforms like, you know, what is it, uh, Tubi and places that do stuff like yeah. that. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that you can be in control of the sustainability of your own life to a certain extent, but an expectation that everything will do well runs counter to the studio model itself, which for many years was an expectation that some of the films would fail and some of the films would succeed. And on balance, the successes would wipe out the failures. Um, so uh, that's kind of, that's my long-winded way of saying like, if you want if you want the comfort of sustainability to be finite and measured and under your feet, this is not a business for you. <laughs> But is there a sustainability you can find on a given project for your career, for a series of projects, for a type of film? Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to dig in on on a budget question, something that I've heard forever from people. And since I have an expert with me, I, I want to ask. Um, basically, every time I talk about a budget over a million or getting close to two million, everyone always says you have to have pre-sales in order for that to be justified. So you have to go to, to hire talent. Now, is that accurate? Or are there movies that are being made uh, in the 1 million to 2 million budget range that don't have pre-sales and don't have big name talent in them? Uh, yes, uh, I, I would say that that advice is way too broad and not specific to, um, <laughs> to what you're dealing with. Uh, uh, the international sales market is in wild flux, just like most sales markets, because the same thing that's happened here is happening elsewhere, which is a shift to streaming. And um, right now in COVID, of course, a lack of theatrical and, uh, you know, just uh, changing ways that our people are watching movies. So the market is difficult to predict in a way that it used to be. And there became a model many years ago of the pre-selling international with big talent and cash flowing a movie that way. Um it still happens today to a certain extent, but it really only happens with a very myopic layer of films in terms of genre. Um, and for the most part, the foreign pre-sales model is not what people are pursuing to make their films these days. There might be some select pre-sales, there might be estimates, there might be one or two territories where you do a deal because it's lucrative. But the idea of pre-selling the whole world on a film that hasn't been made yet still happens, but it doesn't happen for the majority of independent films. And I think on the one to $2 million level, it's, it's more 
the name value of the person you get is more about the perception of what can be made with the film, particularly domestically, if you're an American filmmaker than anything else, which is that if I'm you know, going to a domestic distributor and I say, I have a film starring this actor and that actor is uh, of the moment and hot and exciting, I'm more likely to get a good deal domestically that can justify the budget of the movie. So it's my way of saying like, there's no blanket prescription for all films. And I think if anyone's telling you that there are, they don't know what they're talking about. If you have a, if you have a given film and you want to make it for one to $2 million of which I'm working on many, that film is going to have its unique challenges to its success. And we should identify those challenges together so we can then try to come at them and find good solutions. And that can lead to making a movie, not saying, Oh, it's gotta be this way. Or it's gotta be that way. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at this. Sometimes I've accidentally seen emails I sent many years before a movie I made happened or in, in pre-pre-prep or before it fell apart one time or whatever, because I was looking for something else in my inbox. And when I look at those emails, I sometimes look at how absolutely wrong I was about what the movie was going to look like. And that's not because I don't know what I'm talking about. It was because it's impossible to predict what the final formulation of a film was going to look like. It just simply is. And, and all you're doing is best practices and trying your best to do it and knowing that grit and persistence is going to work out in the end rather than saying, well, here's the, the magic wand that you wave and that's what makes a movie. That's a great way to feel frustrated when that one way doesn't work. So um, long-winded way of saying anyone that tells you they have a prescriptive answer for how everything happens is, uh, is oversimplifying and generalizing. I, I love this conversation so much. Like, I just like love the past hour. I want to like box it up. I'm like, I keep on checking my quick time to make sure it's recording because I'm like nervous that we're going to lose it. Um, we have our final five questions. It's come to that time. Um, I also recognize that you're a busy person. So I wanted to take a second, make sure you don't have a heart out. I have a heart out of 10. Sorry. Okay. Let's, let's do one question then, Ulrich. What do you think? Sure. Maybe, maybe, maybe two. Okay. Um, uh, what's the best filmmaking advice? Um, what advice? Okay. Sorry. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give ah. yourself for us? Press other people. I know that I said this earlier. Um, the best advice I was ever given was when I wrote my thesis script at USC, a manager read it. I thought my life was about to change because, oh my God, this manager read my script and wants to meet with me. He spent 45 minutes not talking about my script, just chatting with me. And then after 45 minutes, he said, so I read your script. It's good, but I just met with you for 45 minutes and there's none of you in the script. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you why did you write this? And I said, I, I wrote it because I thought it was something I could sell. And he said, that's a bad reason to write something. He's like, you're a functional writer. You're not a bad writer. He's like, but there's no, per there's no uh, point of view, personality. I can't tell why you wrote this. What is your voice? And that was the best advice I was ever given, which was don't try to, try to please other people, at least at first. And I know I said that before, but if you're going to go and make something, what you should be doing as you're working in your lab and making shorts and writing scripts and doing all that is honing your voice, how you see the world, because an agent and a manager, when you are eventually working with them, that is what we are selling. We are selling how you see the world to someone else. That's it. Wow, that's amazing advice, Ross. Um, so where should people go if they want to learn more about you, if they want to find Verve? Do you have like a Twitter? Do you have a web page? Where should people go? 
I have a Twitter, but I mostly post dumb jokes. Uh, you can uh, you can Google me. Um, you can Google Verve. I'd say if you want to find out more about you know me personally, I've given interviews. They're online, whatever. But I've also produced movies. And you know, uh, if I'm going to plug one, there's a film I produced called Straight Up, which is uh, up for an Indie Spirit Award for Best First Screenplay that we made for a micro, micro budget. Uh, and it's on Netflix right now from a first-time filmmaker who wrote, directed, and starred and produced co-produce the movie and i think if you're an aspiring filmmaker that's a great one to watch because that was pulled together with grit friends favors and hope and dreams and now it's nominated for an indie spirit and got released by strand it's on netflix uh it's a great movie too but i think it's just a reminder of like that movie was made for a number well under a million well under a million dollars and when i say well under i don't want to give you a number but just imagine it's uh, it's well under so uh so yeah i think uh that that movie speaks to i read that script said i believe in this i want to be a part of it and now it's on netflix and nominated for awards Wow. Thank you, Ross, Amazing. for being here. Thank you for having me, guys. Uh, this is a pleasure, and uh, and hopefully your uh, your listeners are not too scared uh, by my uh, I don't know, by my talking. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. Talk to you later. Awesome. Bye, Ross. Yeah. Liz, as as oh they- my God! I want to high five you. Jeez, what a great fucking episode. So, Liz, what did you think of our conversation with Ross? Is this the one we virtually high-fived five afterward? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were like, yes, this is amazing. <laughs> uh, I love it. The one thing I will have to say, I don't know if Ross is going to listen to this episode or not, is that when I asked that question about being in a wonderful vantage point, being able to see whether films are profitable or not, his literal bread and butter is dependent on making successful sales. So while I would never call Ross dishonest, I do think it is beneficial to him to answer in a positive light. Mm. And I would love to have an off the record conversation with Ross to see are filmmakers really like our films really turning a profit these days. And then also is his vantage point just that of the uh, the films that are doing really well because he's so like well positioned at a really powerful agency. So I, I I've been thinking about this past week is like. What, what would Ross say if you weren't on a podcast? Hmm, you know? Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It just sounded so wonderful. It was like, I want him my, as to be my agent. I want to be at that agency. I want to, like, you know, work with him on a film, you know. But um, it, it's obviously not that easy. And the, the amount of filmmakers that he, he, he works with and that his agency works with and agency like him work with are probably, it's a very, very small percentage, you know. Like, most of us don't get this kind of privilege to have uh, such a powerful force behind us and getting our films made, you know. Um, but he made it sound so yeah, easy. Oh, it's like, oh, yeah, you just do this, you do this, you do this, and then, oh, yeah, then the movie's made. Well, <laughs> he's also Ross. Like, I've known him for a few years. He's one of the reasons I became a vegetarian. He's, like, this person who, like, I, like, have a vegetarian crowd that I, like, turned to when I made the decision, and he's one of those. But, like, Ross is just so brilliant that he can sum up things in that very charming way that I think um I can I think I feel like when I'm saying these things I'm devaluing him he's so wonderful I'm actually trying to puff him up he is so smart that he can sum things up very um very cleanly Mm -hmm. whereas I think if we were in the middle of the process there would be more pain (laughs) <laughs> and havoc involved. I mean, I think he was very honest, like talked about the struggle and how like, you know, some movies don't come together and some do, do, you know, and like what it takes to get a movie, you know, 
packaged and ready and funded and everything. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It sort of was this thing that I've been hearing a lot from uh, guests lately, similar to like what we were hearing, like, you know, um, agents don't help very much from for, for a few episodes in a row. I feel like I've been hearing like just make good work is like the kind of lesson that I've been taking away is that like all this, um, you know, whatever, like trying to network and posturing and positioning and all this stuff like, you know, that doesn't really matter. Like all that really matters is the work that you make. And if you make good work, then it'll rise, you know, and, and that's sort of what his position is. And I've heard that from other people, too. Like, oh, yeah, like if you've written a great script. And, and you push it into the, 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 the system, the system will find it and, will, and that movie will be made. And I don't know if that's necessarily true. I kind of feel like that maybe that's a little bit of a too, of a rosy, you know, sort of depiction of things. But um, I do think that regardless of that being true or not, it's still up to us just to make the best movies that we can and keep on creating. And then that's how we'll continue and grow as filmmakers, you know. But you have to be strategic to a degree. And the films that, you know, I'm working with Naomi McDougal Jones on this incubator. And, and maybe one time we could talk about it because it seems very vague every time I mention it. But we talk about how certain films and filmmakers get on an elevator to success because they get supported by Sundance's and Tribeca's and Film Independence. And I do think there's a lot of filmmakers just left on the table who are really good storytellers who um, are not being programmed by top tier and not being supported by nonprofits. And my personal mandate is it's the long game for these filmmakers. Mm -hmm. They just have to keep making work, just like you're saying, you, you have to put the work in. But I, yeah, I don't think the cream rises to the top. And I think it's all about actually outlasting everyone for those who aren't in that wonderful privileged position to be plucked from obscurity right right yeah being plucked from by either an agency or an organization or yeah, by really our, from obscurity. Our, our production yeah. company or whatever i feel like there's so many different ways that you can get um on this so-called elevator um yeah. but uh but there's so few like spaces on these elevators i think too you know especially compared to how many filmmakers there are out in the world um you know, this isn't on our outline, but do you want to explain really briefly what you're trying to do with this incubator and what it is? I'll try. And maybe we could um, pitch Naomi to come on for just like a very short segment sure. to talk about it because we're actually going to open up applications in, I think, April. Mm. So what we're doing is we're forming and we call it an incubator. It's called Constellation Incubator. And it's um, if you go to avalonstory.com, you can read a little bit about it. But the idea is that we feel that the film industry is broken. It's not as um, it's it's not a well-oiled system. It's like everything is broken, and we're all just kind of um, throwing shit on the wall at all times to see if we to figure out ways to be successful, successful, sustainable, and lead um, and create and finish projects. Um, by the way, her pitch is much better than mine, so we'll, we'll, I'd love to just fast forward to hers. But the point is, what we're doing is we're going to open up applications for, I think it's about 30 filmmaking teams to come along with us and apply design level thinking from other industries uh, to the film industry and look at, is this the best way that we should be making content? Is this the best way we should be distributing content? How can we lead... Um, 
safe, healthy, sustainable lifestyles in this industry while also making a splash with our work. Uh, I know that sounds vague. It will be more specific as we go. And then from that group of filmmakers, we're going to lead essentially master classes with industry experts on how to put films together in a more sustainable way. And then from that, there's a longer plan, but I'm not allowed to talk about that mm. yet. But I think we've all been exploited and it's just not, um, it's not the right way to go about making art and we need to figure out um, a better way to put work together. For, for your incubator, is it about the movie or is it about the team? Like, are you looking for people who have movies at certain stages, like, you know, script stage? Oh, we're not even asking them about oh, movies. Oh, it doesn't care. We're, we're looking for filmmaking teams. Eventually, though, there is going to be a production side of this. But right now, we're just looking to radical filmmakers who are interested in shaking things up mm. and not wanting to just go with the status quo of overworking ourselves, lowering overhead. And um, I know I, I keep on saying the word exploita exploitation, but I really think a lot of labor and creativity is being exploited in a really unhealthy way mm -hmm. in low budget filmmaking. So this is the way, what we're envisioning is how can you reduce costs in other ways other than just like overworking yourself and doing these 14 hour days at low pay or doing these 10 day shoots or whatever it is how can we figure out ways to lower costs in other ways and make films that are more creative so like things we've been thinking about is like you know obviously like having one set that you mm -hmm. pre-light for the whole shoot and then you just work in a 360 way mm -hmm. or what if it is just working on nights and weekends or how can we brainstorm about a healthier way to make content? Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I think it's a, a really worthwhile conversation to have, and I, I don't think there's an easy answer, um, but I think that's why I like reaching out and trying to get a whole bunch of filmmakers together um, to, to work on it as a team seems like a, a really smart way to go about it, you know? Yeah, so. and, um, and I would love everyone who's listening to a to submit an application if they're open to it. But we can do that another time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when it's uh, announced, well, it's announced, but when it's, you know, when you're actually accepting applications, we'll do a big, we'll do a thing. We'll bring Naomi on and talk about it and, you know, really try to amplify this, this whole project because it sounds very important. Um, but Liz, do you have a Get Shorty for us, maybe? So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. We do. Amy Morgan, let's hear her talk about her short, Shelter. I made a short because you gotta start somewhere, right? So I've been making shorts, music videos for a while now, and I'm just now starting to planning a feature. So I always wanted to be a writer-director. I wanted to make films that show people and lifestyles that we don't see a lot in media. So I chose this story because I grew up around these kind of environments. I'm not saying it's autobiographical by any means. It's just, um, I, I like know, I know these people, or I knew these people. That's pretty much it. Well, as the writer, director, producer, I came up with the funds. Um, basically, it's self-funded, very, very low budget, very indie. Um, so I didn't have a lot of expectations on making this short. I just knew that as a filmmaker, I needed to get in a lot of practice and just keep making stuff. Because the more you make, the better you get. 
So um, I was pleasantly surprised when this film got into festivals around the world. Um, that blew my mind. But, and I'm really thankful that there's an audience for it and people enjoy the movie for the fact that it just makes them think because I really wanted to make thought-provoking films. Now that it's out in the world, what purpose does it serve? I just see it as a little educational, thought-provoking, entertaining. Um, at the end of the film, there's information for a hotline for domestic abuse. Maybe if somebody watches it and recognizes that they're in the same kind of situation or somebody they know is, they'll get help. What would I do differently with the story, if anything? I wouldn't do anything differently. In fact, at the time when I wrote the script, my film professor told me that there were too many female characters in my film and that I should add more male characters because they weren't represented enough. But um, I've learned over the years, stick to your gut, do what you think is right, and that's what I did. So this was one of the first short films I made. And along with trying to figure out you know, cast and crew dynamics, I brought in two young ladies and they were phenomenal. They were so professional and I couldn't have asked for anyone better and their families were amazing and it was just the best time and I really enjoyed working with them and I'm looking forward to seeing everything they do in the future. Uh, hey, Ulrich, what did you think of Shelter? Um, okay, so I watched this movie like way back in November when she sent it to us. And I, I probably only got through maybe half. Um, and then I was like, you know what? I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. And then I came back to it months later and watched it again. Um, and then I watched it again a third time just this week. Um, but it was interesting because my memory of it was that the ending was different than what it was. And then when I got to the ending this time, I was like, oh, okay, that makes more sense. Because I thought that the mom had died <laughs> in the end. I did too <laughs> until the very end. I think that's obviously the intent is to make you think that, you know, until she comes yeah. out of the house. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was I thought it was an interesting story. I feel like um, as far as a short film, like all the pieces were there, you know, but I think... The, the, the toughest thing and the thing where I think it suffered the most was that the, the, the kid actors were not the best. And it's really hard with kids because it's hard to find good kid actors. It's hard to, even if you find a good kid actor who can give a good performance, it's really hard to get a good performance out of them. And, um, you know, I think like a lot of uh, what they did with uh, the kids worked really well. But then I think a lot of the dialogue and the lines didn't really feel authentic. Um, and then the, the toughest part, which was really hard, was the end when they're all crying and the crying just didn't feel genuine at all. And I wonder like if, you know, when Amy was on set, like if there was a way that like maybe she saw that she wasn't getting what she wanted from the crying that like she could have rethought the scene in a different way where it didn't necessarily rely on hearing actual tears necessarily or actual crying where you could have just shown the same action but like maybe with some score or some other thing involved where it would still hit hard but without actually hearing it and then this brings me to my second point about it is that I didn't really feel like there was a lot of um, filmmaking techniques being used in the movie throughout. Like, I'm, I'm not really 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure there was no score in it at all. Like, there's zero score 
or very little score if there is um and then then the sound design didn't make up for that because like if you're not going to have score like you should have really heavily done detailed lush sound design that like really makes you feel like all the things that are happening in the movie like the the dinginess of the motel like the loudness of the street as they're walking trying to get to their to their mom maybe there is some score in that in that sequence when they're going from the motel to I remember there being yeah, score during the walk during but the I, walk. I would have to watch it again but yeah i feel like a lot of it there was like a little bit of a missed opportunity my favorite part of the filmmaking was the close ups of the kids like i thought that was really cool that they decided to get really tight um for a lot of their shots and everything, but I just feel like there didn't really seem to be like a good sense of style and a good sense of like tone necessarily throughout the whole piece. And so I think along with the, you know, the the, the kid actors not necessarily being the best, I think that that was really the downside for me. But I really thought the story was good. Like I thought there was a lot of great things in the short. Um, and obviously it's an important story to tell these, these, these terrible, scary things. And I think when the kids were alone in the motel, I did have a, a, a little a feeling for them, you know, of like, Oh God, what's going to happen next? You know, like, Oh geez, what's, what's going on. But I think there was like opportunities for, for other things that could have made it sing a little bit better for me. I mean, well said. Oh, my gosh. That was like the best, uh, a very eloquent way of uh, commenting on this film. Uh, I would like to add to your comment about the child actors is I don't know whether it was in the writing or the performance, but you see this in a lot of family films where the children don't really have any nuance to them and they don't really have any flaws. Right. They're just kind of um, I don't want to say victims, but they're just kind of there and, you know, anytime I see a child on screen in trouble or hurt or impending doom, I feel for them, right? So that's, you know, great for storytelling, just to even have them as a plant in, in the film. But it's like, there was no hysterics, there was no anger, there was no chaos, there were, you know, they were clean. Like, I was just thinking, like, my kid... I would assume that my kid would not be so clean, would be covered in dust and dirt and the bed would be messy and the room would be chaos. Like there's just kind of this very contained way in which the children were treated that felt part of the lack of realism of the mm, performance. Mm -hmm. So it's like production design, writing, performance, um, you know, direction. With regard to the kids, I thought, you know, wasn't as nuanced as it could be very hard to work with children yeah. so like bravo amy for even attempting to do it and those kids are better than most kids that i've seen or in a casting room before so i'm sure they were like you know wonderful to work with compared to uh you know it's tough it's tough to work with children yeah um i remember that australian short we watched a few weeks ago where there was like the turn of the protagonist where um, it felt unearned right, a little bit right. that a protagonist had completed that arc. It felt like that happened again here where the little girl clearly, who I think of the protagonist, the older sister, resented her mother for all of her decisions that led them to this hotel room. Right. But by the end, she hugged her mother. And I just didn't see her come to that realization in the short. Right. It was like, was she 
panicked? Was she fearful? Was she hysterical? Was she angry? Like, I didn't see it go to that hilt in order to come over the hill of, like, missing and loving her mother. Right. Um, so I missed that beat. And then I thought the makeup at the very end of the mother was tough mm. and not not the best. And so, right. um, you know, it might be the nature of the low budget, of course. But that being said, like, we're talking about it, right? And I always, like... I mean, I think you do too. We always like to end with the positives and, you know, it's very hard to do what Amy did and it's six years old. So I'm sure she's done other work mm, since. Mm-hmm. So I think we wouldn't have so much to talk about if there weren't something there. And I hope that Amy, you know, comes back to us with a response or um, shows us something else she's done and we can um, celebrate her again in that way. Yeah. I, w- but I totally agree. Yeah. I, I like what you said about the nuance um, and that like the, the kids didn't really have a lot of visual storytelling elements to go along with their characters, you know, which would have yeah. would have definitely helped. Um, do you remember the short uh, from like years ago or a, a long time ago? And I don't even know if they were on the show or not, if, or if we just watched it and tried to get them on the show and they couldn't come on. But it was like these two boys being left alone at home while the mom goes to... Um, like goes on a job interview or whatever. And then you're always kind of worried that something bad's going to happen to the boys, you know? Um, and then there's like a moment. I don't remember. Oh, that. man. Wait, keep going. Yeah. And so that was a really cool short. And um, it ended with, uh, you know, um, a really like sad thing happened. I think, I don't think the boy died, but it was like, you know, like he got injured, like roughhousing with the other, with the other brother or whatever. And, uh, but that movie was like laced with like nuances as, as far as like describe de- depicting these boys. There was like no dialogue on the whole movie. It's just the boys like kind of like being with them by themselves all day while their mom's at this job interview, you know, and then she comes home and then finds one of the boys, um, you know, like, like unconscious. And then, you know, either an asthma thing i can't remember but anyways it it was really a well done short and um it just reminded me of like when you're talking about the lack of nuance i was thinking of that short and how much nuance that short had anyways amy great job um you know sorry to (laughs) be so tough but uh but yeah i mean you know i want to want to know what other people think and good old gary kennedy who listens to every episode wonder what he thinks of this short Um, but yeah, I think we don't need to get on to, uh, to You've Got Mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've Got Mail. Um, so, wow, 201 subscribers. Holy moly. We did it, Liz. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, we did it. Now, next goal. What was it? 300 250 300 we'll take whatever we can get um so we have a comment from gary kennedy on i think this is episode two there are two comments oh two you want to just pick one sorry um yeah we'll we'll do 299 and then we'll do 300 if we have time we're kind of running low time here um so gary kennedy writes on uh the camila brown episode first off i'm a pretty mediocre filmmaker myself but we need to talk about the rattlesnake in the room hyperthermia was rough like, so rough, boobs can't save it. Which I would argue, boobs can't really save anything that's not good anyways. <laughs> but, um, so it seems like someone made this just to troll you too. Damn. But he made a film, and you got to give him credit for that. Way too many people talk about making films instead of going out there and actually doing it. So, 
I mean, I'll defend Cameron here. I think, um, you know, there was definitely some some really great moments in um, Hyperthermia. Um, and, yeah, he went out and made a movie, you know. Uh, Gary, send us in your films, man. Let's see him. Come on, you know. <gasps> Gary! Gary's movies! I mean, that could be a whole segment. Yeah. It's Gary's movies. Just send us one, and we'll get you on Get Shorty, man. And you can see how it is. Um, <laughs> Um, we do have another comment from him, but we don't have time, so we're going to skip it. Um, yeah, I, I have to leave in three minutes, so let's just... Yeah, well, just very quickly, I just wanted to shout out to David Zeiger. Oh, um, yes. We interviewed filmmaker David Zeiger a few months ago, who is my former boss, by the way, so I like was very invested in getting this on the show. Uh, and uh, we didn't release the episode, so I just wanted to say... Thank you, David Zeiger, for taking the time. And everyone should go to displacedfilms.com and check him out. And that's all. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the first time we've ever done that. And, I mean, we probably should have done that in the past and just didn't. Um, but, you know, <laughs> anyways, that's the way it is. But thanks, David, for your understanding. We appreciate you. Um, but, yeah, Liz, I think it's you, right? Oh, um, okay. Well, if you want to support the show, yeah, please, please do on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. Uh, anything you give, can give is meaningful. If you want to send a question, comment, or suggestion, please do to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Uh, if you like this show, please leave us a review on iTunes or any of the places you can leave reviews for podcasts. It's been a few weeks since we got a review, and we really would love to hear what you think of how we're doing. Uh, finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, and uh, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. And please press subscribe. Uh, I'm supposed to also do the outro, so I'm just going to keep going. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Russ Putman for making this episode happen. To get in touch with me or Allwork specifically, here's how to do it. Uh, for me, Liz Manichel on Twitter or Liz Manichel Film on Instagram. Albrecht, where can people find you? I am Albrecht B on Twitter, and I think Albrecht B also on Instagram. And then you can also Facebook me, or you could just email the podcast email, and I'll get back to you because I get back to everybody. Um, unless you're just yes. saying, please let me be on your show, then I don't always get back to you. But I try to. I really try to. I think you do. I think you, you get people back, back to bleh. You get back to people regardless. <laughs> uh, check out our website, makingmovesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. Thank you to editor... Alric? Oh, Alric no, Cameron Caves. Oh, Cameron. <gasps> Cam the amazing Cameron Caves is editing this episode. Thank you, Cameron. You're wonderful and we adore you. Thank, thank, you, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for doing the editing. Um, and thanks to everyone for listening and talk to all y'all next week. Woo! Wow, amazing. Been a crew member for many years on a lots of different sets. Um, I've made uh, seven feature films. Uh, no, I have not. That's a lie. <laughs>